You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Centre for West European Studies and the EU Centre at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Okay, thank you, thank you everyone. Thank you for your patience, I apologize. Um, so um, this is my first talk on a new book project. Um, so thank you very much for coming. Uh, look forward to hearing what you make of it. Um, okay, so of course the original Historica Schreit was a debate in the late 1980s amongst West German historians about the significance of the Nazi past. Um, but I'm using the phrase here to describe what is a smaller but surprisingly public debate amongst historians of queer sexuality in the Nazi period. Um, it's, it's gotten a lot of press in Germany and it's even gotten press in the English language world as well, which is pretty unusual for a topic in gay history. And it began around 2005 with this structure. So this is the memorial that was built in Berlin to um, homosexuals who were persecuted by the Nazi regime. It was un unveiled in 2008. Um, and the concept is that there's a video playing in that little window that you see. So that guy is looking at a movie. And the debate was about what the movie should depict. Should it show men and men together? Should it show women or not? Um, and this led to a really heated discussion about the question of whether or not lesbians were persecuted in Nazi Germany. Um, so I want to show you this open letter that was written in 2008, I, I translated part of it. It's the great thing about doing a talk in the German department, you don't have to translate the whole thing. But, um, but this is a really clear statement to my mind of, the, of one of the positions in the debate. Okay. So Nazi Germany, there was a law against sodomy. It was called paragraph 175. Men were uh, accused under that law, tried and convicted. They either served out their sentences in the regular prison system, or they could be transferred into the camp system, which was this parallel, um, lawless, hyper-violent, you know, larger and larger network of camps that was initially built by the fascists in 1933 and then expanded. Um, there was no comparable law against female-female sex. So it was not a crime to have lesbian sex in Nazi Germany. And that's the point that these historians were making. Um, and they, they threw down this gauntlet in this piece. They wrote, there is not a single historically substantiated case of a lesbian woman who was caught up in the persecution machinery of national socialism because of her homosexual predisposition. Okay, so we have many cases of women who were queer who were persecuted, but they're, but they're asking for a single case of a woman who was persecuted because she was queer. Um, okay. Uh, this debate has gone back and forth a number of times. Um, and I entered into it by looking at the case of this person, Ilsa Totska. Um, so this person was gender nonconforming. I'm going to use female pronouns to talk about her. Uh, I'll, if you're interested, I can talk in the Q&A about why. Um, I mean, basically, the preponderance of the evidence is that she, had, she either identified as female or there's just no way to say. Um, but so I got interested in her case, not because she was accused, not because... Well, maybe long story short. Um, so this is a person who ultimately ended up in a concentration camp. She ended up in Ravensbrück. She was sent there in 1943 
uh, miraculously she survived the camp and she was still alive when it was liberated in 45. She wasn't sent to Ravensbrück for lesbianism. She was sent to Ravensbrück for the crime of helping, trying to help a Jew escape deportation by Nazi Germany. So she and a Jewish friend were caught trying to cross the Swiss border. Um, and she's ultimately deemed to be incorrigible and sent into the camp system. Um, but what, the reason that I started looking at her file is that um, there were a number of accusations that she was a lesbian. And there were a number of statements in the file about her gender nonconformity in a, in a negative light. So she was denounced on a number of occasions by her neighbors, and some of those denunciations mention lesbianism or gender nonconformity. The police, this is the Gestapo, so the political police, are not interested in lesbianism at all. And, they, and when these accusations come up, they generally don't remark on them. But they're present in the file. Let me give you an example. So this is a denunciation letter that was sent to the Gestapo in May of 1941. Um, this is the whole letter. And what this letter alleges is that Totska is having a lesbian relationship with a minor. So, so there's an age differential here as well as a same-sex relationship. Um, and it calls her a man-hater, um, right? So this is an accusation not only of lesbianism, but of something that was thought to be worse, of seducing a minor into a same-sex relationship. The details here turned out not to be accurate, but the point that I want to make is that this drove that case forward not because it was a case about lesbianism, but because it was a case about connections with Jews. This letter, I think contrary to the intention of the person who wrote it, gave police evidence of a Jewish woman who Tosca had contact with. At this point, it was illegal for an Aryan, which is how Tosca was defined, to have contact with a Jew. Um, so this put them on the trail of her contacts with the Jewish community, which ultimately led to Tosca trying to flee Germany and led to her being sent to Ravensbrück. Okay, so what I ended up arguing here is that we shouldn't ask whether or not, that, that, that if we ask whether or not lesbians were persecuted, we're already cutting ourselves off to a different analysis that we could do if we ask rather if they didn't run certain kinds of risks. So if we think about this investigation, this Gestapo investigation, the file is like 150 pages long, it's a big file. If you think about it as a complex system, Okay, so a system that has internal dynamics that are feeding on themselves, a system that has multiple outputs, multiple inputs, excuse me, from outside of the system that are pushing it in different directions, and all of these forces are working at the same time, and they come to some kind of a result. Um, accusations of lesbianism are part of that. They're important. They're part of the reason that she ends up in the concentration camp, and that's significant. And what I ended up arguing was that lesbians run, or a person like Totska, who's perceived as a lesbian or as gender nonconforming, um, runs a certain kind of risk. And that those risks aren't the same as the risks that men run, and that they're not the same in all cases involving women, but that there is a risk here, and that one could be caught up in the persecution machinery because of that risk. Okay. Um, in my initial work on Totska's case, I really, however, bracketed off this question of like whether this concept applied to men or not. I was convinced that it didn't. Uh, one of the external reviewers on the article asked me if, I, if this wasn't true of men as well, and I just kind of brushed that and like, no, of course it's not. Um, because there's a very strong trend in the literature on men persecuted 
for homosexuality in the Nazi state to define them as a target group or a specific group for persecuted. So this is an example of this. This is the, the, main, the main article on the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's um, website, which is a major English language resource on this stuff. Um, so what you see, and this is pretty typical, is this like list of victim groups. Um, here, racial victim groups are bracketed off, which I think is appropriate. So it's, uh, they talk about the murder of Jews, and then they write, during the era of the Holocaust, German authorities also targeted other groups because of their perceived racial inferiority. Roma, the, dis the disabled, which is a little bit problematic there, but um, some Slavic peoples, right? Okay. And then it says, other groups were persecuted on political, ideological, and behavioral grounds. Among them, communists, socialists, Jehovah's Witnesses, and homosexuals. So I assume homosexuals are the behavioral <laughs> grounds, although it'd be awesome if it was political, you know, political, but... But here, the, and, and this really haunts this literature back to the initial phase of research on gay men in Nazi Germany, which came out of the AIDS crisis and was really an activist project related to AIDS, and that is this comparison to Jews. Um, which all historians now acknowledge is a flawed one, right? Gay men are in a very different position. But we're still retaining this notion that they are the, a bounded social group and that the best way to explain that is a list like this one, right? So there's a certain kind of grammar that's been selected that's shaping the analysis. Okay. Um, and I, I absolutely accepted this for a long time. <laughs> now I'm wondering if maybe this isn't the best way um, to explain what happened. Okay. Um, so one thing I want to point out here is that it, it's, it, no one is claiming that there was a gay holocaust or that gay men are identified by the state, rounded up, and deported as are Jews and Roma. Um, everyone acknowledges that the project on the part of the Nazi state was to eradicate male homosexuality, not male homosexuals. Um, but the distinction between those two projects can be a little murky in practice. So let me read you a quotation um, from Stefan Mitchler's uh, 2002 article about this. He writes, I mean, he basically describes, uh, well, okay, let me just quote him. Same-sex desiring men under national socialism lived in a climate of fear. All aspects of their daily lives were affected by persecution. Bars were shut down or subjected to police surveillance. It became impossible for same-sex desiring men to feel secure even in their own homes or among friends and colleagues. Um, okay, so this sounds, this sounds pretty dire. Um, and yet, as I began to read the files, these are court files in Hamburg, uh, of men accused under the sodomy law, increasingly I came to wonder whether it might be more productive to think of men as running risks as well and as negotiating risks rather than as some kind of a bounded group who are targeted. Um, so that's what I'm going to try to show you in the rest of this talk. I'm going to talk you through uh, two of the cases that I found in Hamburg and then I'll make some conclusions at the end. I'm going to try to give you enough of the evidence that you can really tell me what you think because I'm in the beginnings of this. Um, okay. So I'm going to start with a case that involved a 24-year-old guy whose name was Paul Freitag. Um, I don't have a picture, unfortunately. Okay. So one night in the middle of May 1941, Paul Freitag went to the Stadt Casino, which was a Hamburg pub. 
Freitag was from a relatively wealthy family. He'd lately worked as an artistic painter. The Stadt Casino was, in the eyes of Hamburg's police, a notorious meeting place for male and female homosexuals. So it wasn't, they weren't advertising or anything in the press, but through word of mouth, this, this bar had a reputation as a meeting place. And I've seen this in a number of cases. The police will refer to it as the notorious Stadt Casino. Um, and both men, men met male partners there and women met female partners there as well. So it was um, mixed gender. At the Stadt Casino that night, Freitag sat at the bar. A man came in and sat next to him. The stranger bought him a cognac. He said his name was Harry. He was around 30 years old, Freitag would later tell the police. That night, Freitag left the bar alone and went home to the apartment he shared with his mother. But a few days later, he went back to the Stadt Casino and met Harry again. Freitag later told police that Harry said, er, er, quote, um, he asked me if I didn't want anything with him. They went back to Freitag's mother's apartment. At this point, she was away on a trip, and they had sex. Freitag did not see Harry again, or at least that's what he told the police. This encounter with Harry was one of several that Freitag had with men that he met in bars that were known to the police to be homosexual bars around 1940 or 1941. So he met three romantic partners um, at another pub that was known to the police as a meeting place. He went on a date with a fourth man there, um, and he also went back to the Stadt Casino. Around this time, Freitag also met a 20-year-old woman named Ellen Booz. Booz, employed as a saleswoman, rented a room in a large apartment occupied by a dentist and his family. She was a lesbian. I, I assume Freitag met her through mutual friends. It doesn't say how they met in the file. Booz and Freitag had common interests in books and dance performances, and they got along. Booz invited Freitag to share her rented room. They decided they would tell their families that they were engaged. This would protect them from disapproval of homosexuality on the part of both families, or at least that's what Booz later told the police. So Freitag moved in. They told the dentist and the dentist's family that they were a couple and they planned to marry. And they carried on going out to these same bars, sometimes together, sometimes separately. This wasn't unusual. Um, there are lots of cases that have been found in the Nazi period, and I, I suspect this isn't limited to the Nazi period, of men and women who, who were queer and who married each other for some kind of mutual protection. Um, this wasn't always a great way to protect oneself. So I found two cases in Hamburg where husbands were prosecuted under the bizarrely vague pimping law for tolerating, tolerating the lesbian affairs of their wives. Um, Booz and Freitag's happy living arrangement went on for a number of months until in April, someone who lived in a nearby apartment wrote a letter to the police. The letter said that there was a man vibe living in the dentist's apartment, so a, a man woman or a man bitch, um, and that that person was bringing home, quote, people like themselves at night. Police raided the dentist's apartment in the early morning hours, and they arrested both Booz and Freitag. Both were jailed. Both were interrogated. Booz was released without charge. Um, Freitag was uh, held for a number of months and eventually convicted of sodomy um, and sentenced to eight months in prison. While in prison, he agreed to undergo castration in exchange for a shortening of his sentence. So voluntary castration, as it was called, of course it's not actually all that voluntary, 
um, undergoing this procedure in exchange for a shortened, pr shortened prison sentence was not unusual. You, you do see this in a number of sodomy law cases, also in other cases involving so-called sex crimes. And the Nazi state was not the only state that did this. So perhaps the most famous case, at least right now in the US, of a compulsory castration is that of Alan Turing, the British mathematician now credited with founding the discipline of computer science. He was castrated by the British penal system after a sodomy conviction in 1952, and he subsequently took his own life. He was recently pardoned by the Queen, so posthumously in a kind of bizarre turn of events. Um, justice for the dead. Um, Okay, so to return to Freitag's file and to Hamburg in 1941, what are we to make of this? Well, for one thing, this file really makes me struggle with this interpretation of homosexual men as a targeted group, targeted for behavioral reasons, but treated as a coherent group by the state. Um, and the reason for that is that they were leaving homosexual bars open. Uh, this wasn't only in Hamburg, there's a really good study of Cologne um, by Jürgen Müller that found the same thing that there are bars that are open through the Nazi period that are known to be meeting places. Here's his book. Um, so if this is a state hell-bent on suppressing male homosexuality, why leave these bars open? They were occasionally raided. They were not routinely raided. It was absolutely within the power of the state to just shut them down, um, and they don't. Okay. In addition, there's a certain haphazardness about police efforts to suppress male homosexuality that you see in Freitag's case, but I think you see more looking across cases. Only a fraction of the men who had sex with men in the Nazi period in Germany uh, were, only, were ever caught. Um, so if you take Germany's male population and you take the number of paragraph 175 cases, it's just not possible that they broke everyone who violated the sodomy law. Um, I think you can kind of see this in Freitag's case. He had lots of affairs that weren't, that didn't come to the attention of the police and weren't prosecuted. Had he not been denounced by a neighbor, he might never have been caught. So here's where thinking about risk can open up a new avenue of analysis, I argue. Certain practices aggravated one's risk. Freitag somehow irritated, or Freitag and Booz irritated a neighbor. I've seen this in other cases too, where a neighbor took an interest and denounced the person. Um, so that could certainly aggravate one's risk. There are other things that aggravated risk. Race, so not having Aryan status. Lack of resources. Um, gender expression. The denunciation of Freitag and Booz claims that there's a man vibe living in the dentist's apartment. Um, so they're, they're referring to Freitag. Um, it's possible that they would have asserted there was something feminine about him simply because he was going about with other guys. But I suspect that he had something feminine about his appearance, so he, that he had a gender queerness that was legible even to a hostile outsider. This may have been part of why their attention was drawn to them and they denounced him. Okay, so I'm gonna tell you now about another paragraph 175 case from Hamburg. A case that I think is a really good illustration of something else that you see in Freitag's case, and that is queer agency, the survival of queer culture. And yet, the pronounced risks involved due to a hostile state and a largely hostile society, um, and the fact that people had to negotiate those risks. This is the Heinrich Bode case. Um, though Bode's legal sex was male, there's a lot of evidence in the file that Bode identified as female or had a private female persona. Um, so I'm going to use female pronouns to refer to Bode, although I may make a mistake at some point because I'm translating out of the file. Okay. Um, 
Late one Saturday night in November 1939, Heinrich Böde went with her aunt, Margareta, to a bar. The pair was in a good mood, Margareta said later. She had already drunk a bottle of wine, probably at home in the one-room apartment that she shared with Böde, her nephew, or niece. Um, they were from a working-class background. The aunt worked in a factory um, the nephew had only completed a few years of elementary level education and was working part-time in a carpenter's shop. When they went out that night, Boda was dressed as a woman with a lady's handbag, sculpted eyebrows, and a powdered face. This is Nazi Germany, right? Um, Boda often dressed as a woman and would let, later tell police that she was a transvestite. The word transvestite um, at the time had a very flexible meaning, a meaning that's very different from what it has today, it was initially coined in German in 1910 and is in widespread use by the time the Nazis take power. So in the usage in the, in the first half of the 20th century, transvestite included people who cross-dressed for kicks, people whose experience of gender was somewhat fluid but who confirmed their birth assigned sex, um, as well as people whose birth assigned sex did not match their true sex and who sought to live as their true sex. So the word transsexual, which is also coined um, by the same, by Magnus Hirschfeld, the same person, uh, would eventually come into use to describe that last category of people, and then finally, many of those people would adopt transgender, um, although not until the 1990s. At the bar that night, Böde caught the eye of three soldiers who had recently returned from the war in Poland. Böde bought the soldiers a round of beers. They joined her and her aunt at their table talk got around to the Polish campaign. Boda asked questions about the war. Um, apparently a lot of questions. And at some point in the, in the talk of the war, the soldiers later said that they suddenly realized that Boda was not what she seemed. So later that same night, one of the soldiers made the following statement to the police, quote, she, Boda, tried to ask us about the campaign in Poland. We did not answer and concluded simultaneously that this was a man in women's clothing. Um, at Boda's subsequent trial, the soldiers also said that she was talking quite a lot about the Polish war and that that was the point at which they realized um, that she was uh, not what she seemed in their words. Okay. Um, they grabbed Boda. They handed her over to a police officer who happened to be walking by. That person arrested her and brought her to the police station. Okay, so what was going on here was a little bit, was, was I think, a multi-faceted um, incident. Uh, by the time they got to the police station, the soldiers except, um, suspected that Boda was a male homosexual, so you can see that here. Um, one of them says, uh, he's a warm brother, right? Vama Buda, which is slang for a gay man. Um, but the reigning interpretation at this point, in the hours after the arrest, was I think that this was espionage. Um, so if you look at the headline here, the, this is the headline the police put on their own report, man in women's clothing asked questions about the Polish campaign. Um, so what I think happened is the soldiers thought that Boda might be a spy. This wasn't an uncommon assumption at the time to make about a person who appeared to be cross-dressed. Um, so I, I showed in my earlier work on the Gestapo case involving Ilse Tutska that there was a widespread perception in Germany in this period that cross, and I think elsewhere, that cross-dressing was about disguising oneself for nefarious purposes, either for espionage 
or crime. Um, there's nothing explicit in the very large court file about espionage, ex save for, I don't consider this explicit, um, but I think that this is pretty strongly suggestive. And I think it's important because it's a lesser appreciated aspect of the way that mid 20th century societies reacted to people who were assumed to be cross-dressed. Um, cross-dressing could put one at risk, not only because it was seen as disruptive of norms of gender, but because it was seen as connected to espionage in wartime which is a pretty serious charge. Um, okay, so uh, questioning Boda, police quickly determined that this was not an espionage case. She had several other convictions for sodomy and she also had a prior conviction for cross-dressing. Um, the prior cross-dressing conviction was actually for another incident where she went out to a bar with her aunts and tried to dance with some men who then real decided that she was a cross-dressed man and turned her in. Um, I want to pause here and note what I think happened from the perspective of Boda and her aunts. I think that they went to that bar that night assuming that Boda would pass. Uh, and from that I assume that probably she went out quite a bit and passed successfully. Otherwise, this would not have been a realist, a, a, an at all sensical risk to go to this particular bar. The bar that they went to was not a homosexual meeting place. Um, to engage these soldiers in conversation, especially when one had prior convictions, was to run a tremendous risk. I assume that both Boda and her aunt thought that that was reasonable because Boda passed quite a lot. Um, there are a number of notes in the file about how Boda had a very feminine appearance. So, for example, quote, Boda's appearance as well as his speech is conspicuously feminine. Um, so what I think was happening here is this is a, um, a transvestite who um, was able to go out in public as a woman. Again, this is evidence of the persistence of some kind of queer and trans life, even under an extremely violent, deeply homophobic state. Um, in addition, Boda was not rejected by her family. She and her aunt often went out together. They lived together. Um, they negotiated these risks together. They built some kind of a queer or trans culture together. What I see here are interlocking risks, risks specific to this situation and, and yet also applying in other situations and I see people trying to negotiate them. Okay, so what happened in this case? Bodo was convicted um, and while waiting for trial, prosecutors had a doctor examine Bodo's mental state. This doctor found evidence that Boda was congenitally defective, that is, that she suffered from a mild mental disability that impaired her judgment about sexual morality, and thus she was supposedly at a very high risk of re-offending. The doctor made this determination based on the prior convictions, on details about Boda's childhood from interviews with her and her relative. Um, one of the more heart-wrenching ones is that as a toddler, she liked to sing and dance. Um, so this was supposedly, for the doctor, evidence of an innate defective disposition. Um, the doctor administered a very flawed intelligence test, which Boda did not pass. The fact that Boda was working class and had limited formal education put her at risk in that case. Um, the doctor and the court concluded, to quote the court, that Boda was, quote, mentally limited, weak-willed, hysterical, flamboyant, a passive homosexual psychopath with a tendency to transvestitism. 
the doctor recommended that something be done to Boda in addition to a prison sentence because of the very high likelihood of reoffending. Um, and the court agreed. And thanks to that logic that this was a person at risk to reoffend, she was transferred out of the regular prison system um, into a concentration camp um, to Buchenwald and murdered there in 1943. Okay, so transfer into the camp system was the worst possible outcome for a person in Boda's position. Why did it happen in her case? And why didn't it happen in other cases? For example, the other one I talked about, um, Paul Freitag. The single biggest factor that got Boda sent to Buchenwald were her prior convictions. Contributing to that was the doctor's finding that she was, in effect, mentally disabled. Um, so this is really a case about disability as well as about queerness. Uh, she's ultimately defined not as a homosexual, not as a transvestite, but as a homosexual psychopath, that is, a mentally ill or mentally disabled homosexual. Her gender uh, was, was part of this finding. Um, so here's a passage from the file that, that um, I pulled out, not only because it speaks to um, cross-dressing, but it speaks to fascism as well. It cannot be denied that a man going about in women's clothing is not in keeping with the prevailing concepts of discipline and morality. Under the current state, a state of manly outlook, um, it is not permissible that a man counterfeit the other sex by wearing women's clothing. Okay, so, so in the Manostats, the fascist state built on masculinity, th this is particularly problematic. Um, this is part of the story, right? This is one of the influences on this complex system. Um, but it's not the case that Buda was sent to Buchenwald because of her gender alone or because of um, her convictions for sodomy alone. Um, Rather, there are a number of things that play into this, right? Her bad luck to have been sentenced before, the failure of her negotiation of risk on several occasions, the last one on the trip to the bar with her aunt, um, her gender, her, her, her lack of resources. She couldn't afford a lawyer, which seems to have been hugely determinative. Um, Freitag was wealthy and had a lawyer, and, and I think fared better because of it. Um, so... Anyway, to conclude, this is a complex system where many factors are coming into play. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do now is offer a couple of conclusions, and then I'll open it up. These are um, the cases I've talked about. Just to kind of refresh your memory. Okay. Okay, so number one, surprisingly to me, it seems that queer men, queer women, trans men and women are in a more similar situation than one would have thought. When one moves away from the paradigm of seeing, looking for a social group defined by behavior and rather looks at risk, I think we then adopt um, a theoretical way to look at all of these people together as, part of, as interacting with the same murderous justice system and as running very different kinds of risks, um, yet in an interrelated sort of spectrum. Um, okay, so why is that better than talking about gay men as a social group? Okay. Well, because I think we can draw some new conclusions. Um, for one thing, the social group model doesn't fit all that well. I've kind of talked about this. Unlike the rather straightforward treatment of racial groups, uh, you know, Jews and Roma are identified by the state, persecuted, and then deported beginning in 1941. The Hamburg deportations are actually running concurrent with these investigations. Um, 
the investigation, in contrast, the investigation trial and fate of the person post-conviction in these cases are an evolving complex system, unique in each case, though there are important commonalities. What recent studies of gay men in Nazi Germany, such as Jürgen Müller's excellent book on Cologne, have tried to do is to retain the notion of a targeted social group while arguing that the state goes after certain acts in particular, like male prostitution. And that's true. They're much more aggressive about male prostitution. But there's no, um, the situation on the ground seems far more complicated than an organized effort to crack down on male prostitution while leaving other forms of male homosexuality alone. There are lots of cases of men like Freitag who are convicted for um, having consensual sex with adults in the privacy of their homes. Um, so there's a haphazardness to this system. If we think about risk, if we think about policing and prosecution as a complex system, we can investigate what otherwise seems nonsensical or haphazard. It is sometimes haphazard, right? These are complex systems that are, that are being driven in different directions um, by various risks that are interacting. In addition, what I like about risk is that it brings into view people who otherwise wouldn't be in our view, people who are undoubtedly caught up in the persecution machinery but are not gay or lesbian. So one example of this are the two straight husbands that I mentioned in Humber cases who are prosecuted for tolerating their wife's lesbian affairs. They would not be included in that list of victim groups on the Holocaust Memorial Museum's website, right? Um, and yet, their prosecution is absolutely related to the state response to homosexuality. So building on this, there's a category of crimes in Nazi Germany that are moral, morals crimes, sexual morality crimes. For the most part, these crimes are not being prosecuted based on Nazi legislation. Um, the pimping law right, dates to the 19th century. Paragraph 175 dates to the 19th century, although it's revised. There was, throughout the through the 19th century and before, and into the late 20th century, an imperative on the part of European states to police morality, to save their populations from debauchery. Um, and that's the basis of this legislation that's being used here, and that's part of what we're seeing. Um, and I think it's easier to see that if you think about risk. I also think that risk allows you to think about the agency of these people, to think about the queer and trans lives that they were able to lead, and to think about their project of negotiating risk, which was a, which was a terribly fraught project to be sure, and one that ended very badly for some of them. Um, finally, I think that this may allow some tentative comparisons to other regimes. Okay, so here I wanna be really cautious because historians generally, and I agree with this, treat the Nazi regime as a very unique regime. It's particularly violent. There's a particular racial violence that happens under the fascist state. Um, and the Nazi criminal justice system is very unusual, both because the Nazi state makes some additions to it, to the existing justice system that it inherits from the liberal democracy, and because of the camp system. The camp system doesn't have any well, counterparts in other states. However, um, if you think about Great Britain in the same period, uh, you see some similar dynamics here. So the, Britain is a country that has a sodomy law that dates back to the 19th century, a sodomy law that's enforced, a sodomy law that convicts a, a sort of roughly analogous number of men. So the um, number of men convicted in the UK in the 20th century is thought to be like between 100,000 and 300,000. 
um, West Germany retains the Nazi era law and convicts um, uh, tens of thousands of men under it. So the total number of men convicted in Germany in the 20th century is actually not that different from what the number who are convicted in Great Britain. Of course, the, there's a really, really important difference, which is the violence is far more extreme in the, in the Nazi system um, than it is in the West German system than it is in the British system. But this is, this is a part of queer history that I think maybe is a little bit under-recognized, which is that negotiating these kinds of risks and negotiating state violence was a, was a crucial part of queer life in the mid-20th century in these wealthy states, be they dictatorships or democracies. Um, and I think that getting away from, you know, I think that one thing that, that um, this does, um, I mean, I applaud the addition of gay men to these kinds of lists, but um, I think this implies that this is a unique thing that happened, and, and, and that, and talking about ways in which it's actually very similar to, or somewhat similar to what happens in other countries, I think, right, we don't usually think of gay men as a victim group in um, liberal uh, Great Britain, but um, maybe we should. Okay, um, so thank you. I'll open it up now for questions. Thank you very much.